Well, good morning. We are finally wrapping up with 2 Timothy. It's been a few months, not quite the three-year wonderful marathon that Romans took that was worth all of the time, but we have come to the last sermon in our series in 2 Timothy. So as you open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy, let me just say what a joy it's been to be able to plow through a book, to actually dive into a series that is focused on what God's Word through the life of Paul writing to Timothy an older, wiser pastor to a younger uh, needing pastor. It's been a rich series. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through the close of 22. This is God's word for us this morning. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Please pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, the close of this letter, the last thing that Paul was to write in his entire ministry, let this word, even this word, be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path, that we can see the heart of the gospel clearly, that we can bring glory to your name and see the promises in Christ as yes and amen. Let it be so for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is Paul's last letter. It's written by a man, clearly, but it's divinely inspired. It it too is God-breathed. Even this last little section that has all of these beautiful uh, greetings and goodbyes, it's surprisingly realistic. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't paint this glossy, like, everything's great, I'm doing fine kind of picture. It's realistic, and it's heartbreaking, but it's also miraculously empowering. Even in the worst of times, as Paul is in his uh, darkest hour, he's alone in a prison cell waiting for his final um, trial date that will be condemning him to death. So we want to see on this level of Paul, what is he saying to his 
mentee to Timothy, this young pastor that he's worked for probably over 15 years. But then on another level, we want to see what is Timothy taking out of this? What is this meaning for a young man who wants to be encouraged by his mentor, not see him in shame and shambles at the end of his life? Then we want to get one more layer because this is divinely inspired. This is not just a letter written to an ancient church with its pastor. This is God-inspired, a letter written for all times in all places to all people, calling Christ their Lord. So what we see here, that his life, Paul's life was given for Christ, so can our lives, because we serve the same message that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. If I could give you a sermon in a sentence, it's simply that the gospel message saves, and to the other, uttermost, as far away as you can possibly imagine that you could be to your Savior, to your friends, to your community, in prison, in a cold, damp cell, Christ is there and he saves. So proclaiming Christ and him crucified for you and for me, risen to new life, gives us new life at every stage of life to be lived for nothing less than his sweet and pure glory. That's a lot more than a sentence. But the gospel saves. That's a sentence. So I want to try to unpack this in three points. First, the gospel-guided greetings, or goodbyes, as they turned out to be. That's the people that Paul's talking about. Second, we're going to get into the, the fully proclaimed gospel. That's the message. What is Paul boiling this all down to? His last final words. That's the message. And then finally, the gospel glory. How good this glory is in the gospel. First, Paul starts by talking about the people. In verses 9 through 15 and a little bit more in 19 to 21, he gets into a number of these people. I actually mentioned 17 different individuals. Some of them have a little more biography that we know from different parts of the Old Testament or New Testament here. Some of them have simply this is the only place they're mentioned. But out of those 17, I just want to narrow down, zoom in on seven. You're welcome. So, first right off the bat, he starts with Demas. What is Demas? has been a co-worker, a fellow worker for many, many years with Paul. What does he say here? He says he's actually deserted him. He's fallen in love with this present world, and he's deserted him. Now, a couple important words. Some of them you'll recognize because we've talked about them throughout uh, chapter 3 into 4, and now here in the closing you'll recognize this word love that he's in love with is not the philia, the, the brotherly love. It's not the eros, that kind of romantic love. It's agape, the centering love, the governing love of our hearts. Where should that be? He said this a number of times. Go back to chapter 3. He said people will be lovers of all kinds of things and is intentionally there in chapter 3 using philia, they're going to try to replace this God agape love with a horizontal brotherly love that's supposed to take over and govern them, but it simply can't. It's not built for that. They'll be lovers of self, chapter 3, verse 2. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so when he gets to Demas here in, in verse 10, he's in love with his agape love is not directed vertically at God who's the only object of our love, 
the governing love, the centering love, Demas has let that be farmed out. Or he's taken a second love and kind of put it next to God. In the present world that he finds himself, it's not the world as in the earth, the physical stuff, the tangible planet. It's the world, the age, these passing trends and and seasonal fads that he finds himself. What probably has happened that is constant throughout time is loves get attracted. The, The false love becomes wrong by degree, by direction, and duration. We synchronize our loves. We try to take a good thing and make it just right next to Jesus. Isn't that sweet? Oh, it's so rich. Or a beautiful thing that's in creation. I love this part about this that I see in the world. And I elevate that far and above that it should be. By degree, I make it too grand, too glorious, too much of an ultimate thing that it can't possibly hold the weight of my love on it. This is especially compared to, in verse 8 of chapter 4, those who have loved, agape loved, Christ's appearing. That should be the centering love. That will be the thing that organizes rightly all the other loves that happen in life, all the other things that we're interested, excited, and passionate about. When we love the fact that Christ appeared once for all to live as us, to die in my place, to rise again, and to reign eternally. And he will come back to judge. That appearing of Christ should center and focus all of my loves. It puts everything else in its proper order and place. But Demas, in love with this present age, this present world, the passing fads of whatever that was, has turned him to desert Paul, to leave him because it's not worth the potential suffering or the reputation loss or the Demas might even be imprisoned himself. wanted to compare this with a really important phrase that we've seen in Romans from Romans 12 verses 2 when Paul compares this exact thing. What, what is the promise that the world says? There's a pattern of this world, this age. What is Paul's strong rebuke against that is in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. It's the same idea there. Don't let our loves, don't let our hearts be shaped by those patterns. That's what happened to Demas. And there's a problem. Secondly, Paul talks about Luke. Luke alone is with me. That is one of the shortest but most incredible statements of this letter. Luke knew Paul since before his conversion. Maybe knew of him, maybe knew directly, maybe was there when we were first introduced to Paul. Remember way back in Acts chapter 6 when a young man named Stephen is being stoned to death. Paul had some supervisory role of that moment, whether it was even just him holding the garments of those men that were the angry mob stoning him. Luke knew of that. He probably was there as he records it so accurately in Acts chapter 6. And for over 30 years since then, Luke has traveled with Paul 
day in, day out. He's invested his life in ministry. Paul and Luke write together as we, we went to this place. We went across the sea. We traveled together and now Luke is there with Paul in prison. This is an incredible thing to think about. Luke himself isn't one of those journalists that kind of, that likes to document a couple things and oh, this will be a good nugget. I'll write this into my story. Luke went out of his way in his first gospel and in Acts, his second writing, to make sure he was letting his audience, us, know, he scrupulously went through the facts and details and interviewed with a lot of detail to find out what exactly happened because I don't want to get this wrong. It's that significant for the people involved that this message is clear. Luke is there with him. He seems to be the only one there with him. And he's not just there documenting facts and getting statistics. He's sharing life and ministry with Paul. Next, Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. The second part of this verse 11. Mark is a kind of a controversial young guy. right? We remember back in uh, Acts chapter 12 and 15, he was there with Barnabas and Paul, Paul and Barnabas, the, the son of encouragement, they were like a team. And then Paul wanted to bring on Silas, and Barnabas wanted to bring on John Mark, this young man. And Paul's like, I, I don't know if he's got it. I don't know if he's cut out for this kind of thing. He's, you know, he's waffling a little bit. And that kind of made a split between Paul and Barnabas over this young man, Mark. Well, something happened. We're not exactly sure what, but it's amazing And what Paul shows here is there's been restoration. There's been restoration and reconciliation so that he says to young Timothy, on your way to to see me back in Romans, in this, this prison, bring this young man Mark, for he's very useful for me in ministry. What use could Mark bring to him? Is he really good with facts? Does he remember all those dates? Oh, no, yeah, Paul, that was the second ministry journey that you were in the shipwreck. Yeah, that was it. Okay, good. Maybe. What does useful in ministry look like? I think, I think because he's going to give us some other hints at the the examples that he uses, Mark is, is such a significant man for ministry because he is a living witness of the reconciliation between two really significant gospel preachers. Paul can say, I didn't think God was at work in this man, and now look, God's at work in this man. Go ask him. He's right there. That's a beautiful example of how God can work in reconciliation across years for his own glory and the church's good. Next, we get to see the Tychicus has been sent to Ephesus. He's been sent on Paul's letter delivery service before I can't imagine what the mail service back then was like, but this guy, this Tychicus, is the mail delivery guru. He's taken Paul's letters all over the place, and he's not just handing a letter and, see you later, nice to meet you. He's actually the one we recognize from other places, specifically Ephesians chapter 6, right at the end of that letter, which is Timothy's church that he's writing to, the Tychicus is going to take Timothy's place. They kind of exchange. Timothy's going to come back to Rome to visit Paul. Tychicus is the one delivering the letter and being the interim pastor for Timothy while he's gone on this sabbatical. 
Can you imagine that job description? Whew. But Tychicus is the guy. He's proven himself worthy, not because he loves the spotlight, but because he loves the gospel. He's called a, a faithful, a beloved brother, a faithful minister in the Lord in Ephesians chapter 6. He's done this in Colossae in Acts chapter 20. And now he's coming to do it alongside of Timothy. Then we get to this next gentleman in verse 14, Alexander. He's a coppersmith, some kind of metal worker. We read about him earlier in Acts chapter 19. He strongly opposed our message, the message of the gospel in verse 15. Back there in Acts chapter 19, he was one of those that when uh, Paul and his team went into this area, into the, the area of Ephesus where Timothy is ministering, they were all about, the metal workers of the day were all about making idols to Artemis of the Ephesians. So much so that when Paul preached strongly against any and all idol worship, the metal workers are thinking, this guy is totally undermining our bottom line. If there's no idol worship, there's no idols. Then there's no work for me and no provision for my family. This guy's got to go. So Alexander is one of those metal workers. He's an idol maker. Now he's probably Jewish in background, and for some other reason, we don't get those details, he didn't have a beef, he didn't have a problem Beef is kosher, so it's okay. But he didn't have a problem. Sorry. Alexander didn't have a problem making idols. He should have. As a coppersmith who was Jewish, he should have a significant problem with that. But when Paul called him on it, he opposed Paul's message so much so, this is probably 12 years later, he's still taking the stand and being a, at least a thorn in the side, he's still opposing, he's still doing great harm to the message of the gospel. And so Paul's kind of encouragement to Timothy is when you pass through that area, beware of him. Don't go and try to talk to him. Not that he's not worth it, but we've already been down that route. And he's one of the main, he could be the informant that got Paul in prison initially that then has led to this, uh, all, this further imprisonment. There's a, there's a problem there. So look out for Alexander, he says. Next, in verse 19, skipping down a little bit, when Paul says to greet Prisca and Aquila, these are the same two, the same couple that he's mentioned in a number of other letters. Now, Prisca is the formal version, the, the fancy name, Kind of like the long name, if we've if anybody named Elizabeth, you might be called Liz. Prisca is Elizabeth, where Priscilla is Liz. In my logical English-speaking brain, that doesn't work because Prisca is shorter than Priscilla. But that's how it worked in, in Latin. In that na- the Illa would be the shortened kind of little girl. Okay, just take my word for it if you don't understand like I don't. But he's calling her his, her formal name. And he puts Prisca first alongside her husband to say, these two, these woman and man, wife and husband, they have been co-workers, co-laborers 
along with me in the gospel. It's the same couple that we heard a few weeks ago in sorry, Romans chapter 16, verse 3 and 4. They're, they're co-workers. They're actually also tent makers along with Paul. They've, they've probably worked along the same piece of fabric. It wasn't this nice you know, nylon ripstock that we have today. It's like canvas, big, heavy sheets of it making tents. But more specifically, we find they risk their necks for Paul's life. That's a significant thing that Paul's not just saying and say hi to them as you walk by them. But they risked their necks for me. They were caring for me, co-laboring, not just to earn a nice day's wage, but to project ministry that was Paul's purpose for years and miles into the future. And then next, we get to Onesiphorus the household of Onesiphorus. Greet them. Why not Onesiphorus? Why not him and his household? Well, if we remember back in the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he is in Rome. And he's been in Rome because he searched out Paul. He went and find, found him in prison. And he often refreshed me, Paul says. And he's not ashamed of Paul's chains. Onesiphorus is there. He's probably out on some errands when Paul's writing this letter. That's why he's not with him at the moment. But he's not ashamed of Paul's chains. So tell his family back home. Tell his household that their dad is doing something worthwhile. He's not on some wild goose chase, off on some business trip, doing something fancy. He's actually caring for Paul. He's taking care of him. And he's not ashamed of the place that Paul's in. All of this to say, all of these examples show Timothy that Paul cares about people. And Timothy needs to care about people. He needs to rely on the community he's in. He needs to encourage them. He needs to pray earnestly with them. He needs to not be ashamed when they end up in the same place that Paul is. So what's our takeaway? What do we do with this kind of hodgepodge of people? How do we categorize them? I'll be honest, part of my preparation for this, I'm trying to lump them into, like, the good people, we want to be more like them. The bad people, boo, right? That, that's kind of our tendency. Where do we get that from? I think I want to push against that because what Paul is doing, he's got a more gracious nuance of every single one of these characters. He doesn't fall into what I think plagues us today, and I'm not going to get on this tangent. Please, if you have a question about this, ask me. But I think this is really important for this particular point. We have this mood today that kind of hangs in the air. It's, some have called it a critical theory mood. Critical race theory has come out of that. It's a mood where we're too quick to, it's too easy to categorize a person by one trait and then lump them in with everybody else, with all those people whatever direction that might be, rather than what Paul tries to do here, even somebody like Alexander, who did me great harm, what's his next line? What's Paul's approach to Alexander if he were to meet him again? He says right after that, verse 14, the Lord will repay him. It's not up to me. I don't need to put him in a box as one of the untouchables. 
in life because of what he did clearly to Paul. The Lord will repay him. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will repay. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I think rather than putting these, all these characters into kind of this neat good, bad, or ugly, whatever we want to put them in, these categories, rather than just lumping them in and then trying to be more like the good and less like the bad, and those, I think we need to see the nuance that Paul gives us. What's the point here? What's the takeaway for us? That Paul's final greetings gives insight into the core of his gospel, that it reaches all the way down and guides our thoughts and our heart attitudes. How is my heart attitude that someone toward someone that did me great harm. I don't need to hold bitterness. I don't need to hold resentment. I definitely don't need to hold grudges because the Lord will repay. That's a big thing. We're going to circle back around to that in a minute. But I don't want to miss, especially, I don't want to miss verse verse 13. When you come, he's telling Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. That's probably where he was arrested and in the scuffle or whatever it was. He couldn't grab his cloak. Now it's coming up on winter. He's a little farther north and he's going to be cold in this cell. That's an important deal. But he also says to Timothy, also bring the books and above all, the parchments. Now I'll fully admit, I have a bias towards books. I'm an English literature major in college and I got to teach books to middle schoolers for a long time. I love books. Don't personally own any parchments, but I love books. What is Paul telling Timothy here? What is he telling his heart? What is he telling us by extension? He's not just saying, I need some reading material, and he's not the originator of that. Like, so if you're stranded on a de- desert island, which book would you bring besides the Bible? Like, that's, Paul's not the first one making that up. It's way better than that. What he's saying to Timothy is, I've got a book. I've got a collection that somebody has probably sewn together these pieces of parchment or papyrus or whatever material they are. I've got them, and I couldn't bring them when I was arrested. What do I want with that collection? It's almost certainly a collection of Old Testament documents. The the Old Testament Bible, whether it's in Hebrew or Greek, Paul knows them both. And oh yeah, he quotes them all over the place. If you're one of those statistically-minded people, in 13 letters that Paul writes, he quotes the Old Testament over 130 times. Try that this afternoon with chat GPS and see if it can get that good. That's a challenge, by the way. Don't try with chat GPS. It's not worth your time. But that's a lot of quoting. 130 in 13 letters. So he knows the Old Testament. He knows it thoroughly. And he wants to anchor his thoughts in what are going to be his last moments on the planet, probably weeks from his death. He wants to anchor them in his Old Testament. His parchments are probably the more uh, precious documents. Maybe they're some of his journals. Maybe they're uh, pieces that he's documenting along the way of his ministry to say, remember this family. Go back and remind them of the goodness of the gospel here. Don't forget this in this town because he's got a lot of people, a lot of places to remember. However it is, he is telling Timothy that he's urgent. He's eager to study more so he can get even closer. He can draw even closer to knowing God, to see his promises working out in his very life. And that gets us to our second point. 
What is the fully proclaimed gospel? In other words, how far, to what extent does Paul believe that the gospel is good and still worth proclaiming? Is there a day when he'll be like, hmm, yeah, I'm going to take a day off today. I'm done. I'm in prison. It's kind of mildewy and stinky. I didn't have a good breakfast. These rats, they keep gnawing on my ankles. It's not really fun. I'm done. No. He's publicly calling out lives. He's publicly proclaiming in this letter to Timothy, but knowing that it's going to be read in front of an entire congregation as the last thing he tells them. And he's showing what he's anchored his hope on all along, that all Scripture is actually God-breathed and it is profitable. That's not just money-earning. It's profitable. It's fruitful. It's going to do that for which God has sent it all the way to the point of your last weeks in prison, close to death. It's going to teach. It's going to reprove reteaching when error is found. It's going to correct, even using negative examples like Demas or Alexander. And it's going to train us in righteousness how he's shown us by being strengthened in the grace of Christ Jesus. Positively here, he's proclaiming that the gospel has no bounds. The gospel cannot be chained Even when Paul's on trial for his life, the gospel is not one single bit diminished. Why can I say that? This is, like uh, Robert mentioned at the end of Romans, this is probably the only way that God, okay, God could do anything, but God has gotten Paul into prison in order for him to proclaim the gospel to prison guards, to fellow prisoners. The gospel is not diminished. And Paul will declare, his life will put it on display that the excellent glory of Christ is worth him doing anything for, especially dying for, because Christ died for us. That's anchored there so that we might live and, yes, even die for him. So the gospel is not bound. Luke anchors his book of Acts in these two bookends. Follow this. At the very beginning of Acts, he's tracking Jesus' final words before he ascends, saying, you will be my witnesses. How far? To what extent will y'all be my witnesses? The people probably are asking. How far will it take us, Jesus, to be your witnesses on this planet? And and Jesus' words are, to Jerusalem, here in this town, to Judea, right, the next village over, the next region over, but to the ends of the earth. What place is out of bounds for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to go? There's no place out of reach. And then you remember how Acts ends? Acts 28, verses 31. Paul is in prison, and Luke says that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. How? With all boldness, without hindrance. This is the way the gospel works. Even when the the eyes of the world look on a person like Paul at the end of his life and they go, he's a nobody, he's stuck in prison, he's in chains, and he's about to die. Why do I want to listen to this guy's message? 
Luke's writing says, there's nothing that's hindering the gospel. Chains? That's an avenue. That's a beautiful thing. Look at where he is. Death? That just proves how worth it the gospel is. With all boldness, with no hindrance, even when we look at this negatively and say, but there's so much more that Paul could do. There's so many more places he wanted to go. He wanted to go all the way to Spain. Maybe he did, but even in prison, the guy, when the gospel seems stifled, when it seems done, when it seems a, it seems a dead end, it remains unbound. Now, some of us will see, but there are people still opposing this. Aren't they going to win out? If Paul dies, didn't those who arrested Paul, like Alexander, didn't they win? Don't they have the last word? Paul's message to Timothy in that little phrase, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message in verse 15. And then earlier, that the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The, the Lord repaying Alexander, he's using that same word repay that he used of himself back in chapter 4, verses 8. He says, the Lord will repay or award me on that day. The Lord is the righteous judge. Paul can say without a shadow of a doubt, even to somebody who opposed his message, opposed him personally, got him landed in jail, the Lord will repay, knowing that the Lord is a righteous judge. And that means he extends mercy to whom he will extend mercy. He extends grace to whom he will extend grace. And please don't catch that this is Paul, the perfect apostle, the one that's written all these wonderful letters and has done splendidly his whole entire life. Remember who he was when Luke first met him? He's the one approving of Stephen's stoning to death. If the Lord, who is the merciful judge, will work in the heart of someone like Paul to change his heart from stone to life-giving, pumping flesh, then of course the same Lord can work in someone like Alexander's heart, can work in my heart. Of course he can. That righteous judge, he will repay, and he's a merciful giver. Now, if we blow this out a level and talk about what Paul's talking to Timothy and what Paul, by extension, wants the church that Timothy's ministering to in Ephesus to know, but also by us, he's, he's encouraging them, he's encouraging us 2,000 years later not to give up on those who seem lost, not to give up on those who seem in prison. There is no too far extent for how far the gospel should and can go because a righteous judge has said to go, declare, proclaim, be my witness, and there's no limit. It's not after you hit your, you know, your walk count, your step count for the day, then you can pause until tomorrow. All the way to the furthest extent and especially, if you remember Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 25, right? 
For those that were thirsty, you gave water. For those that were hungry, you gave food. For those that were not clothed, you clothed them. And what about Paul's situation? For those that were in prison, you went and ministered to them. As Luke is doing, as so many others are doing, and as he's asking Timothy to come and do for him now. Please don't think this is evaporated. This is not dissipated. This is an urgent need even today. If I can just simply encourage us in a gracious way that we have many opportunities to continue to care for prison populations and prisoners. There's a flyer back on the back table next to the door that you came in. It's for the MNAs, the Ministry to North America, the, of, uh, an arm of the PCA that is called Metanoia. It's a prison ministry. Some of you all have been involved in prison ministries for years. There's a lot of other good ones out there. Care for those in prison. Take a look at one of this, or you can have one of these handouts. You can have that one if you want. I would also encourage you, if you haven't read or, or seen a, a book by the name of Just Mercy by Brian, Brian, yes, Brian Stevenson, highly recommend reading this book. It's an incredible story, life, real-life story of a, of a lawyer whose heart is for those men that are in prison, wrongly accused. How do we know if they're wrongly or rightly accused? We go to the furthest extent to try to find justice where justice is needed. And I hesitate at mentioning this other one, but I think this is also really significant for a specific moment in our day. If you haven't heard of Rachel Den Hollander and a book that she wrote a number of years ago called uh, How Much Is a Girl Worth? I, I can't recommend reading the whole book because it made me nauseous. It's that hard. But please either listen to her testimony as she speaks to the man that has horribly and violently abused her for years and read the introduction to this book because she really evenly, helpfully, gospel-centeredly balances the fact that, yes, the Lord will forgive, but that does not erase justice, especially for those that are victims. Strongly encourage two avenues of that because Paul's point here, he's not letting anybody off the hook He's very realistic that there's a practical prison proclamation that gets to happen because the gospel goes everywhere. He knows the reality of life. He knows it in the depths of prison. He knows it in all of these different people's lives, in households, in different towns. He knows how far the gospel goes. And he knows what it's like to be deserted. He knows what it's like to feel like you're standing alone. But even in those midst, look at verse 16 and 17 here in this second point. At my first defense, no one could, came and stood by me. I think he's actually talking about he had no other lawyers that were helping him out, that making his case in a legal sense. But he's also saying, I'm, I'm here alone in prison. Nobody's encouraging. Nobody's bringing me clothes or food or anything. There's nobody left except for Luke. But he does say, after all deserted me on this witness stand, may it not be charged against them. How can he say that? And he's using, again, very legal language in the middle of his courtroom scene when everything's on the line for him and nobody shows up in his defense. He says, 
let them not be charged. Don't let it charge, be charged against them. Against them. He's using this language of may it not. It's a prayer. He's saying, Lord, don't let it be charged on their account. How can he say that? Because right after that in verse 17, he says, but the Lord stood by me. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So he's saying to Timothy, y'all, don't be surprised when others desert you. Don't be disappointed if that happens. Even when they prove their love for the present world is, is possibly stronger for the love of Christ in the gospel, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He's anchoring that point in the very first opening section of, of this letter to 2 Timothy, where he says in verse chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor about me, his prisoners. Don't be ashamed. Stand by me. But he also goes on to say, Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That word power, that's the same word that he uses here at the end of strengthened. God strengthened. God empowered me. God stood by me, and his presence empowered me as I want you also, Timothy, to be empowered. How can Paul be so certain that it was the Lord who stood by him and that it was the Lord who's going to strengthen him and continue to, and even young Timothy in his ministry context? Because Paul has seen this power to the uttermost. Guess where he saw this? He's taken this from a quote from Brother Luke. When Luke wrote about Stephen being stoned, remember what Stephen saw in his last vision? You remember what he saw? He looks up to heaven as rocks are flying at his head. He looks up and he sees Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? He's standing by him. And we might think of, oh, that's, that's a warm fuzzy. We've got a friend that stands by us. In that time, to stand by someone was the stance of prayer. It was the posture of pleading, Lord, I want my feet to hurt as long as it takes. I want to plead for this brother. Be with them, strengthen them, encourage them, work in their heart. That's the Lord Jesus. That's the Savior who stood by Stephen. While Paul was approving of it, the Lord was praying for Stephen's faith to be made strong all the way to the uttermost. Paul's seen it. He knows how real it's going to be. And he says, even when everybody else deserted me, the Lord was standing by me, praying his mediator, his intermediator, his one that's going in between God and himself to say, if the Lord prays for me, it's as good as done. I will be strengthened. That is a beautiful thing. And all of that, catch this, this little hinge phrase, right there in the middle of verse 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Why? That little hinge, so that there's a purpose that God is strengthening him. So that through me, I'm a conduit, this big pipe that's going to be oozing and sharing the love of the gospel with anyone and everyone so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. That the gospel is good not just when it's easy and comfortable, that the gospel is good all the way to the end. As bitter 
and heartbreaking and suffering and loss as it might be. The gospel is that good. So that the gospel proclamation, he says, so that the gospel might be fully proclaimed. That word, fully proclaimed, it's assured. It's as grounded and anchored, as established as you could possibly get. So that the message is confirmed even to the point of suffering, of death, fully assured, all the way to the end. This gets us to our last point. How good is this? How rich is this? How beautiful, captivating is this for Timothy and should be for us? In verse, the second half of verse 17 there. So that the gospel, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Here the gospel message is going there. He's being strengthened. He's being empowered. He's been, been in, 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 enabled. So empowering, I can't say it. He's being that encouraged by the gospel that he can fully proclaim it. And when he's saying that all the Gentiles might hear it, he's gone as far as he could possibly go. Every single last one of them has heard the good news. And so he was rescued from the lion's mouth. Here, when he's talking about rescued, he's clearly referencing a Daniel story. And I'm thrilled that VBS this year this summer is, is going to be set in that Daniel story because there's so many rich details. How was Daniel rescued from the lion's den? Did he find that button on the wall, hit it, and get teleported out of there? Okay, I'm, I jest. No. He wasn't rescued from. He was rescued through. Right? He endured the whole night praying, pleading with God. Lord, let your glory be on display even if I die. So he was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me, Paul says, from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. There's a lot of really good parts about this translation. If I can help one little bit of that phrase, bring me safely, the Greek word behind that is sozo, which is the Greek word of salvation. He's saying the Lord isn't just going to teleport me out of here and rescue me. Poof, yay. The Lord is going to be revealing his salvation. He's going to rescue me in a saving way. Not just out of something, not just from something, but to something for his gospel purpose. And he says... He's going to rescue me from every evil deed, bring me safely where? Into his heavenly kingdom. He's that certain. There's no doubt in his mind. And don't mix this up with this kind of, I just want to be released and not have to worry about the suffering. Just because he's not getting that specific. He says, Yes, to, to die and be with the Lord is great, but to still be here, to live, even if it means suffering, if I can be that conduit of the gospel, if I can share the goodness and the glory of the Lord with everyone else, it's worth it I stay so I can be a value of service to you. And he's saying this 
all of that he's saying is in context of this community. The final piece, the place that he wants glory to reside, that he wants this idea of how good the gospel is to the furthest extent it saves is in the gospel community. He says that the, the message, the kerygma of the, the gospel, the core beauty of the gospel, the Greek word there is the kerygma, might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles. He wants this community. He wants the whole people of God to be brought in from every tribe, language, people, and tongue, from everywhere. He wants them brought in to see and to Savior, to enjoy Jesus Christ and his, Him crucified. That's, that's the central message. Paul is giving Timothy this really clear witness. Timothy, you've got what you need to preach. Preach the gospel. That's what you and the people of God are to be centered on. There is no other message that we need to be focused on. It's the gospel. It's the core. Christ in him crucified. Him died and him resurrected for new life for dead people. That is the gospel. And where does this end him? What's his last word on the planet that he wrote down? It ends him in praise. Right at the end of verse 18, he'll bring me safely into his, his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And in case we miss that, how far is his love of the gospel? It's the same word. Forever and ever is the same as he kind of called Demas out for. In this present age, the eon that his love was in this present age, Paul's love is in every, forever and ever, every eon. Forever he'll be in love with the gospel. That's how far his praise overflows so that he can say, let it be as I've said, amen. Let it be true for y'all as true as it is for me in this prison that it's that good. It's the exact doxology that Paul writes in his very first letter in Galatians 1.5. To him be the glory. He starts his ministry. To him be the glory. He's ending his ministry. To him be the glory. And he can say amen because it has been. It's been the thorough thread all the way through. In other words, one commentator puts it like this. When we find value and glory in this age or this world or the fulfilled age in Christ to come for eternity, it should be shaped by that governing love, that agape of Christ. That's where we should find the glory forever and ever. When he ends in verse 22, two last phrases I wanted to draw out. He says, the Lord be with your spirit. He's not talking about some general, vague spirituality that Timothy might have found along the way. He's not taking a bypass and like finding Buddhism and then coming to Rome and being like, yeah, I got this new spirituality. He's using the same word. The Lord, the Christ, Jesus, be with your spirit. Here, spirit is the same pneuma that he's mentioned that is in God's word. It's God breathed. It's God's pneuma, the spirit that is launching and empowering the word of God to be what it needs to strengthen us. So when he says, the Lord be with your spirit, that's not a throwaway. That's not a see a. Saying the very God who empowers you by his word 
that rich, strong spirit, that Lord will be with your spirit. That's how you'll be empowered. That's how you'll be strengthened in the very word of the Lord. And he ends, grace be with you. Grace not as a commodity to be traded. Grace not as a nice gift to kind of take and unwrap and pass along. Grace as the centering goodness, the undeserved favor of the Lord on our lives that reminds us, that anchors us in the promise is that good. He closes connecting Timothy's spirit with the Lord's spirit and connecting the grace of Christ with Timothy and with all of us. The very last word, grace be with you, if that were translated in the English standard southern version, the ESSV, it'd be grace be with y'all because it's plural. He wants that same grace. It's not just something that he gets. It's good enough, rich enough, full enough for all y'all. It's that good. And that's where he's anchoring it. And it's been that good for 2,000 years. It's not diminishing. It's not dwindling. It's thriving and flourishing around the world in a lot of places where a lot of people are suffering a lot more. If I can conclude with this, Paul's exhortation, his urging all the way through this letter is to say the promise of God is worth everything. So don't just listen and forget this. Don't leave here from this comfortable building, go into whatever busyness that we have, forget that we have an anchored and rooted and grounded faith that for thousands of years has empowered and equipped people like you and me with all kinds of craziness and brokenness and mess and sin in the background of our lives to put our focus firmly on the gospel and the glory of Christ that will last and endure for eternity. Don't forget that because there's going to be that split second when you're tempted, when you're doubting, when you're worried or anxious and you're faced with two instant promises, that little promise of sin, it might be good. Nobody else is noticing. Everybody else is doing it or the lasting promise of Christ. Let Paul's words on his deathbed remind us that the eternal promises of Christ are always better, far and away better than any of the promises of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're always better. Let his spirit be with you. Let his grace be empower and strengthen you where fame will not follow let faith guide you because his promise will not let you down please pray with me god our father in these final words of paul let them be an encouragement and empowerment a source of strength and guidance as we seek to know you and love you more to see your glory your rich and beautiful glory to captivate our hearts and lives so that we are led to go, to serve, to care, to proclaim, to reach into prisoners' lives and to break into places of injustice and see your glory 
abound in people's lives. Call us to deeper love, Lord. Center our love on Christ so that your glory may abound in our church and across the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.